Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, episode 28, Nikoforos, 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 Nikoforos. So before I get into the the history here and explain this weird episode title, I want to first thank this month's new Patreon supporter, Nikolai Dimitrov. I also want to thank uh, and apologize for not getting two uh, episodes out this month. My laptop was in the shop for quite a while, and that forced me to acquaint myself with Windows for the first time in a decade. And needless to say, my productivity took a pretty serious hit as a result. So as a dedicated Mac user, I can sort of blame Microsoft... uh, being something I don't understand as a, as a reason I really just could not get very much work done for the whole half of the month. So apologies for that, but still going to do my best to get out two episodes this month. Okay, to the story. So Georgi Wojtek's uprising uh, had failed, right? His body is probably lying in a ditch somewhere, and the self-proclaimed Tsar Peter III is roasting under the hot sun in a prison somewhere in Syria. The year is 1074, and the dreams of another Bulgarian state are as dead as they've ever been. At least to an outsider. Because dissatisfaction with the Byzantines continued. When, just after Wojtek's failure, Emperor's, uh, Emperor Michael's chief minister, Nikoforos, ended the annual subsidies given to the Pechenegs, this other tribe living along the Danube, and so they too rose in rebellion. But it was a year too late to help take pressure off the Bulgarians. But still, it was a serious challenge to Byzantine sovereignty. Now, that rebellion was led by a man named Nestor, a man who may have been Bulgarian, but was at the very least from the northern Balkans. He had once been a slave of Constantine X, but he was now leader of the Paristron theme. And under the heavy-handed policies of Nikoforos, uh, he had large amounts of his new wealth confiscated, and now he decided that this justified him leading his theme into open rebellion. Now what's curious here is that the demands of this rebellion weren't independence, but simply for Nikoforos to be removed from power and the subsidies restored. These demands were powerful enough to draw a very serious army together, which, under the leadership of Nestor, marched to the gates of Constantinople with their demands in hand. But the emperor, Michael VII Dochus, dithered. He delayed making a decision until the circumstances did so for him. Because ultimately, infighting between the factions and Nestor's army forced him to retreat. Still, that doesn't mean the rebellion was a failure. In fact, the Parastrion theme was ultimately declared independent and remained so for a while. So now, as a result of this, the Pechenegs were in charge of the Lower Danube and the area between that river and the Balkan Mountains. In other other words, what used to be the heart of the Bulgarian state was now more or less independent, but under Pecheneg rule. And a year after Wojtek's failure. Oh, the irony. But how did this change affect the region? Well, to begin, it dramatically cut trade. 
Without Byzantine protection and subsidies, the wealth that usually flowed over and through the Danube reduced to a trickle. It should come to no surprise that this pushed the Pechenegs to look elsewhere to plunder. So they turned their sights to core Byzantine territories south of the Balkan Mountains and raided. Now in other news, at the same time, our old friend Mikhailo Vojislavovich, the uh, soon-be king of Serbia, was moving away from the Byzantines and seeking the favor of the Pope. As a result, in 1077, he obtained this title of king, with Duklia now being referred to as a kingdom. So this man continues for decades. He's just been playing his cards well. He may have failed in his support for the Bulgarian uprising, but he doesn't seem to have really lost sleep over this. And he's still ruling his own kingdom, thumbing his nose at the Byzantines, and obtaining grand new titles from the West. But in the meantime far more sinister things were happening elsewhere. The policies of that same Nikoforos had been doing far more than simply creating revolts. He formed a state monopoly to control grain, which resulted in inflated prices, causing famine in Constantinople. The emperor also found himself having to devalue the currency, leading to his nickname Parapinakis, if I pronounce that right, which translates as minus a quarter. Honestly, it's a pretty great nickname for a Byzantine emperor. All of this sort of built up and built up until it triggered simultaneously revol simultaneous revolts in both the Balkans and Anatolia in 1078. Now, bear in mind, the Byzantines had been dealing with an average of one serious rebellion every two years from the 1070s so far. So we're not even over with a decade and things are really not going well for the Byzantines, or for the Bulgarians living under their reign, as it happens. Now, this Balkan revolt was led by the Byzantine leader of Dyrrhachium, a city which we all know very well by now. Now, this was led by the second of the Nikophori, Nikophoruses, however you want to pluralize this Greek name. Now, this man was named Nikophoros Vrenios, the Elder. Um, so, yeah, well, I'm going to try my best. I'm going to just call him uh, Brianios, but apologies. It's going to be very tricky to keep all these Nikoforos guys in, in uh, kind of in line as we go, but I'll do my best to make it clear who I'm talking about. So he had the support of the Empire's Balkan troops and had his brother march to Constantinople. But as usual, they were unable to breach the walls of the city and the army was ultimately forced to retreat. We should probably all know by now that, you know, armies marching to Constantinople may sound great, but that usually doesn't end in success. Now, the aggrieved classes of Constantinople, you, we remember people in the city are really annoyed at the emperor, right? There's famine, there's not enough grain, the currency's been devalued, they are extremely upset. And they're eager for anyone to replace Emperor Michael VII. So they turn their attention to the leader of the other uprising, Another guy named Nikoforos. I'm going to call him Voteniates. Voteniates, something like this, uh, trying to guess the pronunciation of his name. Now, he was the leader of the Anatolic theme in central Anatolia. He was more successful, ultimately, in putting pressure on the emperor, in part by obtaining the support of the Seljuk Turks. Now, this forced Michael VII to retire to a monastery and live out the rest of his days. Just a quick note, this is still all happening in 1078. So to recap so far, 
you know, there's this one Nikoforos who is rebelling in the Balkans. He tries to attack Constantinople. He, it fails, but he's still going. Another Nikoforos in Anatolia attacks with the support of the Seljuk Turks. And he's a bit more persuasive. He gets the emperor to resign. And now Botaniatis, the, this, uh, the emperor, the guy in, uh, from Anatolia, he now becomes Emperor Nikoforos III. Now I'm just going to call him Nikoforos III, and that'll be his name. So this new emperor, though, he immediately failed to win friends in the capital. He immediately failed to sort of rally support behind himself. So he started by attempting to secure himself a marriage and to force the successors of Michael VII to kind of get out of the way. Didn't go anywhere. In addition, he also failed to prevent further devaluation of the Byzantine currency. So he's failing to kind of stop the bleeding that was happening from his predecessor. Though sadly, in spite of the fact that the currency would continue to devalue under his reign, he did not get an awesome nickname like Minus a Quarter. It's a real shame. But, so the problems for Nikovoros III actually don't end there. Because now Armenian princes are leading an uprising and attempting to gain independence for their regions of Armenia. And Brianios himself had still not been defeated in the Balkans. It was only a setback. His army turned around. But... In spite of becoming the new emperor, this guy now has an existing rebellion going on and a brand new rebellion going on. So things look pretty bad, right? Oh, no, 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 no. But they're actually much worse. The problems keep coming because while all this chaos is going on throughout the Balkans, the Paulicians, a heretical religious sect which had been long ago forced to settle around Filipopolis, modern Plovdiv, in, by the Byzantines in exchange for a promise to kind of keep the Bulgarians at bay. Well, this religious sect, this heresy, had been slowly establishing itself as a force and controlling the passes through the Balkan mountains. Now, these Paulicians were allying themselves with these newly semi-independent Pechenegs, meaning that they now had the potential to dominate those mountain passes, the plains to the north of them, and the Danubian fortresses. Their leader, Traulus, secured this alliance by marrying the daughter of a Pechenik chieftain. So there's also this problem. Now, these guys haven't revolted yet, but they're really, really strengthening their hand. And uh, no doubt the emperor is looking, in addition to these other rebellions, at these uh, Paulicians and their Pechenik allies with great and growing concern. Then, while all these problems are developing right along, there's another kind of pressing problem. Now... Briennios, remember this uh, this guy leading the uh, the uprising in the Balkans? Now, he'd consolidated himself in Thrace. He'd really, in, when he retreated from Constantinople, he kind of, yeah, pulled himself together and he managed to cut Constantinople off from the rest of the Balkans. So while the empire had other troops there, they couldn't really get to them. So now this emperor finds himself with very few troops um, and trying to decide what to do. Well, he calls in the Seljuks. Remember, he rose to power in part by allying himself with the Seljuk Turks. So the Sultan, Suleiman I, sends about 2,000 horse archers to help a friend out. All the while, he's negotiating with this re rebel leader, the rebel Nikoforos in the Balkans. Really, this negotiation is just trying to buy time because he needs those, more, those new troops. He needs to gather his strength so he can fight this rebellion. Once he felt strong enough, he sent one of his very best generals, Alexios Komnenos, who I'm just going to call Komnenos, out against him. Now, Komnenos commanded, excuse me, he commanded about 12,000 Byzantine soldiers, plus some Frankish mercenaries and those 2,000 Seljuk horse archers. It was a pretty formidable force. 
but the rebel Nikoforos in the Balkans also commanded between somewhere around 13 to 16,000 of his own veteran soldiers. So, you know, the, the emperor, this brand new Nikoforos III, he's gathering his strength, but still his soldiers just are not as experienced as these Balkan troops are. And he, he doesn't have uh, the super crack troops at, at his disposal. They're kind of all off somewhere else. But still, he's got a very able general to command them. So Komnenos marches to a fort along a stream on the north bank of the Sea of Marmara. Now, if you don't know where the Sea of Marmara is, it's this kind of small sea that's between the Black Sea and the Aegean Sea. And it's very, very close to Constantinople. So he gets up there, and initially he fails to fortify his camp for reasons that are a bit mysterious. But lucky for him, he's got his Seljuk allies. And these are horse archers. They're really good scouts. So they ensure he's not going to be caught off guard. And so soon enough, his scouts tell him where the enemy is, what the enemy's strength is, and, well, he's got good eyes. He knows what's happening. However, bad news for him, some of those scouts are captured, and that same information about his force falls into the hands of the enemy. So now, right, these two enemy armies are approaching each other. They both know where the other is. They both know the strength of the other, and they're trying to suss each other out and decide how this coming battle is going to happen. And so thusly, the stage is set for the Battle of Calabria. Now, when these armies meet, Brianios, the rebel uh, Nikoforos, he sticks with the traditional Byzantine formation. He lays out his three divisions in a line with his Pechenig allies on the side, ready to prevent him from being outflanked. Remember, the Pechenigs are horse people. They're, they're kind of steppe nomads, and they really know how to move around a battlefield. Komnenos, well, he's a bit more daring. He's outnumbered, and so he decided to stay on the defensive and to position some of his troops in a hidden low area, ready to outflank the enemy forces once they advanced. So he set this trap, and now we have to see, is Brianios going to fall into that trap? So the Brianios, the rebel Nikoforos, he begins the battle by having all three of his columns advance together. As they move forward, the trap is set, and Komnenos' troops attempt to surround his right wing. But reserve troops are quickly moved in, and these reserve troops manage to fight off these entrapping forces, and the trap doesn't work. And the ambushing troops, those troops who kind of set the trap, soon are running away. You know, their ambush fails. Their ambush fails, and they're heading towards their own line. And this causes panic. You know, no no matter what happens, when you have an army out there in the field, if some of your advanced troops are running away and running towards your soldiers, it really hurts morale. It makes people freak out, right? So this causes panic, and it leaves the left wing of Komnenos' forces to sort of start breaking and running. So things are really not looking good. In the meantime, the right wing of Komnenos, his soldiers, uh, are being outflanked by the Pechnigs and also beginning to collapse. But then something happens. A sudden shift prevents the complete destruction of Komnenos' forces. Because those Pechenigs, instead of following up their own success, uh, after they've destroyed the, the enemy's right wing, they decide to turn around, go back, and plunder their own army's camp before leaving the battle to return home with what they'd stolen. That's right. They lead a successful attack and then turn around and steal from their own allies. In other words, 
In case you hadn't really noticed over the last couple centuries, the Pechenegs really serve one master, themselves. Their ultimate reward is called hard cash, and that's what they're interested in. So this shouldn't be super surprising, but it's something to always bear in mind. The Pechenegs are not super duper loyal. And, but even, even by those standards, this is a pretty remarkable thing, right? Uh, the, the Pechenegs and their allies are on the brink of victory. They're doing super well, and the Pechenegs decide, you know what? Actually, we think we're going to make more money if we steal from our friends and just uh, run off with it. So that's what they do. But in spite of this Pechenig treachery, the battle still going, is still really not going well for Komnenos, right? The, the general representing the Byzantine emperor. His right flank, uh, his, he's with the right flank personally, and he's soon surrounded and he barely manages to escape the collapsing right flank with his own life. So he retreats back, he gets to a hill behind his position, and he begins to gather his retreating forces together, right? So his right wing and his left wing are both kind of collapsing, but he draws them together, reforms them, restores their morale. He tells them that Brianios, the, uh, the, the, the kind of rebel leader, is dead. It's not true, but, you know, it's a good propaganda bit. He tells them the enemy is dead and that they can totally win, and so he starts to pull them together. Then, just at this moment, Seljuk reinforcements begin arriving. And so at this moment, the battle kind of begins to turn and the rebel Nikoforos, his rear is now in chaos because of this Pechenig attack, right? His own allies attacked his own rear. So his troops are now going from being victorious to being a little uneasy. So you can imagine at this, at this moment, right? The battle is really on a knife's edge. Like it could tip either direction at any moment. The question is what force is going to jump in there and push it in the direction it's going to ultimately go. Well, that's in the middle of happening. While, while all this is going on, the center of Komnenos' army, his Frankish forces, are totally surrounded, and they ultimately surrender. So you remember the right and the left wings both kind of collapse, they both retreat. This left, the center, just hanging out by itself. It's surrounded and taken out of the battle. So now we're still on this knife's edge, right? Uh, both sides have had some victories. They're both kind of regrouping, figuring out what's happening. And Komnenos... Well, he's preparing a counterattack. He's, you know, he's regrouped his forces. He's got Seljuk reinforcements. He's ready to attack again. So he redoes his strategy. He places troops on both the left and the right in some hidden areas, ready to ambush the enemy. And he switches his center into uh, from a line formation into these kind of small groups intermingled with Seljuk horse archers. So the idea is here, his troops look like they've almost collapsed, right? There's no more line. There's just some little groups of soldiers and everyone else is hiding to the left and right. So it's a very inviting target for the enemy. So those central forces, those little groups of soldiers, they start engaging in hit and run attacks. They rush forward, the horse archers, the Seljuks fire some arrows and they rush back. They're trying to draw the enemy forces into this trap. They're trying to lure them in so that the troops on the left and the right can spring the trap and surround them. So they keep doing this, keep doing this, and initially the enemies don't take the bait. But then they finally do. The rebel forces start moving in for the kill, and then suddenly they're set upon on nearly every side. Those troops rise up from the left and the right, and they just move in to surround them. The rebel army falls into confusion, the army disintegrates, and many of them are killed. Uh, Nikoforos Brianos, he, he gets in the rear and he attempts to rally his troops, just like his enemy had done, but he's captured. So one of these rebellions is finally over. And Brianos himself, well, he's blinded as punishment. 
though the emperor ultimately took pity on him and actually restored a lot of the status he had before he led his rebellion, which is pretty strange, but, you know, I guess one rebel appreciates another rebel. Not much explanation I have beyond that. But, you see, the Balkan rebellions, well, uh, uh, how to put this, they're not over. So, picking up from where Brianios left off, that exact same year, I mean, these things are happening just one after another after another, another general named Nikoforos uh, Vasil- Vasilakis, um, I'm just going on Vasilakis from now on, because he is now a th- eh, third or fourth Nikoforos we've encountered, he gathers what remained of these forces and mounts his own rebellion, right? So what is this telling us about the Balkans? That there's a real kind of desire for rebellion. There's a real anti-Byzantine feeling here. I mean, think about Yorki Wojtek's uprising, failing, and then this uh, semi, you know, semi-successful uprising by the, the Pechenegs and their leader, and then this failed uprising, and then another uprising right after it. I mean, all of these are within the span of just a couple years. It's It's always shocking. Generally, when you see an uprising... Right, The people who are rising up, they throw all of their efforts into the single uprising. And when it fails, it fails. And that's it. And everyone goes back to doing what they were doing before. But here, that's just really not the case. So it's really showing us that there's a lot of dissatisfaction against the Byzantines. And this dissatisfaction is strong enough that people are willing to try over and over again to, uh, to, to fight them off. Or to take over the Byzantine Empire as it occurs. Because a lot of these are Byzantine soldiers. So... Maybe that's the difference. Some of these rebellions are purely anti-Byzantine. Others are just anti this particular emperor and his particular regime. But getting back to the story then. Um, yeah. So so essentially what, what, what this guy, this um, Vasilakis, what he'd been doing was lying in wait. He, he'd been watching this battle between um, Komnenos and uh, the, the Nikoforos III, the emperor, and as well as Michael VII. He'd been watching all these forces fight each other, and he'd been thinking, okay, once they destroy each other, whoever's left, I'm just going to jump in and take them out. And it was a smart strategy. But... So the question is, you know, did are these enemy forces now weak enough for him to, to kind of gather his own forces and defeat them? Well, Alexius Komnenos was sent to deal with them just as he had been sent to deal with the previous rebellion. And this was actually done very quickly. So the answer to that is really no. Um, the, the general was sent out. There was a night attack on the banks of the Varda River and Vasilakas, his forces were destroyed in this single battle. The rebellion ended within a couple months. The defeated general, he fled to Thessalonica, but he was ultimately turned over to the Byzantines by his old soldiers and blinded. Now, you could probably guess, uh, okay, so so we finished another rebellion, now what's happening? Well, it's time for another guy named Nikoforos to enter the story. This is the fourth one. So, yeah, you, you were probably thinking the same thing I was thinking. Like, you know, this story really needs another guy named Nikoforos. So, another guy is uh, is, is coming in here. And Alexius Komnenos, he's been asked to put down yet another rebellion. Uh, and this time, it's this Byzantine general and aristocrat, Nikoforos uh, Melisenos. And now this guy's in Anatolia, right? So he just had these back-to-back rebellions in the Balkans. Uh, the guy who rebelled in, in Anatolia became Emperor Nikoforos III. And now yet another general, an aristocrat, uh, is rising up in Anatolia. 
Uh, I was laughing. I'm, I feel like I'm starting to play Rebellion Clue. Like, it was Nikoforos uh, Melisenos in Anatolia with the Seljuks, right? Uh, if you've ever played this board game, it's, it's, it's getting so convoluted that it's feeling almost systematic. But so, point is, in 1080, this guy uh, obtained support from local Byzantines as well as the Seljuks. So remember, the Seljuks previously supported Nikoforos III. Now they're supporting this guy. Why they changed their support, I'm not exactly sure probably because he just gave them an offer they couldn't refuse. Um, so what he allows is these Seljuk Turks to garrison many cities in Western Anatolia as he expands his control against the emperor. This is the beginning of a system, a, a sort of a pattern we're going to notice, where not just the Seljuks, but a lot of these Byzantine enemies are going to be given really sweet offers of territory and, and perks by rebel kind of rebel groups within the Byzantine Empire in order to support this particular or that particular emperor. Uh, so we're going to see how this plays out over time. But in this case, the Seljuks are given access to these cities in exchange for their help. Now, unsurprisingly, once again, the emperor sent Komnenos, his best general, to fight this new rebellion. But this time something different happened. The general refused to go. There was no executing a coup and trying to oust the emperor from Constantinople because now the victorious general proclaimed himself emperor, just as Nikoforos Melisenos was proclaimed emperor across the Bosphorus in Nicaea. So Nikoforos III, I mentioned before, he was unsuccessful in pretty much everything he tried to do, except he did succeed to kind of uh, fend off these rebellions, but more rebellions kept coming. And ultimately, this general, Alexios, he decided, you know what? I'm the one who's having all the successes here. I'm just going to take your place. And it works. So now you have two people proclaiming themselves emperor, one on either side of the Bosphorus. But when Melisenos hears that Komnenos has become emperor in uh, 1081, he decides he's ready to make peace. This isn't his enemy, and uh, he's probably a little afraid of this general because obviously he's shown himself immensely competent. Now, he suggests that Komnenos should control the Balkans while he controls Anatolia, and that the two should work together to keep the empire strong and united. Komnenos makes a counteroffer. He says he'll make Melisenos Caesar and governor of Thessalonica. So, Melisenos is initially a little bit hesitant, but eventually, nah, he agrees. It's probably the best deal he's going to get. So they needed to join forces because uh, Nikoforos III actually was still holed up in Constantinople. I, I didn't really mention this before, but both emperors on either side of the Bosphorus, had, well, both men had proclaimed themselves emperor, but Nikoforos III is still in the city. But soon enough, uh, the city fell and the deal went through. So everything kind of goes back to normal, except that, okay, it actually really doesn't. Because something happened here. Remember those Anatolian cities which had been given over to the Seljuks? Well, that didn't change. Those cities still belonged to the Seljuks. So while the empire comes back to peace, while we have a new uh, emperor, there, there's still this big problem uh, with the Seljuks occupying even more, uh, even more territory. And overall, the empire's armies are still just completely exhausted with all these rebellions and civil wars, having to fight themselves back to back to back to back. And the assaults keep coming. Because that very year, in 1081, the Normans, under their famous ruler Robert Giscard, attack and take the Byzantines' uh, Adriatic ports, uh, uh, take the port of Corfu. 
So they're now attacking the Balkans, and they're doing help doing so with the help of the king of Duklia, our old friend Mikhailo Vojislavovich. Now, Vojislavovich actually dies around 1081, but he does marry his heirs with an important normal, uh, Norman uh, noblewoman and secures an alliance. So now the Normans, remember, they previously took over southern Italy from the Byzantines. Now they're allying with the Serbs in Duklia, and they're attacking uh, the Adriatic coast of the Byzantine Empire. So the question, like, the question is, why were the Normans actually doing this? What drew them into the Balkans? And who were they? You know, we haven't really talked to them about them up to this point. So in brief, they're the descendants of the Norse Viking raiders who settled uh, in Normandy, the Normandy region of northern France, and had been had kind of made a deal with the Frankish king, right? They said, all right, we're, we're Viking raiders, but we'll settle here. We'll become farmers and swear allegiance to the king in exchange for being given this land. But what really made them famous was actually their adventures, their conquest. The Normans conquer England famously in 1066. Then they conquer southern Italy well, from around 1015 till around this time. They're spending the century conquering uh, southern Italy. Around the same time, they're also conquering big chunks of North Africa. And eventually they establish a crusader state in the eastern Mediterranean. So in short, these people are conquerors through and through. But the question remains, why the Balkans and why now? The short answer, because the Balkans were there and because the Byzantines were weak. It was, I think, pretty basic opportunism. Once the Normans kicked the Byzantines out of southern Italy, it was time to take the next step, to, to move in and take over. So to do this, Robert, he had to recruit a new army. A Byzantine princess and scholar described the process of him bringing his army together as follows. Quote, not being satisfied with the men who had served in his army from the beginning and had experience in battle, he, Robert Guiscard, formed a new army made up of recruits without any consideration of age. From all quarters of Lombardy and Apulia, he gathered them, over age and under age, pitiable objects who had never seen armor in their dreams, but then clad in breastplates and carrying shields, awkwardly drawing bows to which they were completely unused and following, and following flat on the ground when they were allowed to march. Yet, however unused to soldiering they were, Robert Guiscard trained them daily and hammered his recruits into a disciplined force. This was his business in Salerno before he arrived in Otranto. So the emperor and the Norman king first came into battle, or came into contact at the Battle of Dyrrhachium. Now, before we get to the Battle of Dyrrhachium, I'm going to kind of cut off this episode here. I think we've reached about 30 minutes, and I want to treat this uh, Norman invasion of the Byzantine Empire in its own episode. So we're going to see where this goes. But in the meantime, so look for this in about two weeks, uh, I'm hoping. Uh, listen out for that. And yeah, this episode is written by me, Eric Halsey, produced by Lance Nelson, as always, and now with the research help of Stanmir uh, Bogdanov. So thanks, Stani, for your help. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. As always, thanks so much, Teddy. I hope you guys like the theme music as much as I do. And yeah, like us on Facebook, review us on iTunes. Uh, you can listen to us on SoundCloud. Write, write me a message in the Facebook group if you'd like. Uh, you can check out everyone's while I'll post some cool stuff there. And uh, yeah, check out Bulgarian Now podcast. This podcast I do every once in a while with Lance Nelson. I co-host it on occasion and hear about what it's like to live in Bulgaria today. 
Uh, also, you can listen to the Byzantine History Podcast if you don't already. Um, this next episode will have me answering a question about the Cyrillic alphabet for uh, Robert Pearson, a friend of the show. So check that out if you aren't already a listener. Then, in the meantime, uspech or good luck.